Hello, everyone. This is Melissa Groman with the podcast of Recovery, Hope, and Healing. I'm really excited today to have with me Dr. Reggie Melrose, who I believe is probably sitting in sunny California right now. Um, Dr. Melrose is a clinical child and school psychologist with a degree from, from McGill University in Canada. She is a noted uh, writer, author, lecturer, and consultant, and a practitioner of somatic experiencing therapy and a few other things, which hopefully we will get to in great detail. And she has also authored several books, including You Can Heal Your Child, Why Students Underachieve, and The 60 Seconds Fix. Welcome, Dr. Melrose. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so I have like a million and one things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, The first thing I really wanted to jump right into, because I know that you do a lot of trauma healing work, and I know that we all have different definitions of trauma, and sometimes we think that our experiences are not actually traumatic. Many of us have been told, well, that's not a trauma. This is a trauma. Um, So I thought I would just start out by hearing your thoughts on what trauma is and then move into some of your work with trauma and healing. I'm so glad you asked that question because it can start the conversation off um, in the climate that I really want to create during our conversation, which is one of compassion. Compassion is what cures trauma. And when we think we can objectively judge for another person what should or shouldn't be traumatic, we're outside the scope of our capacity to be compassionate. It's really important for us to understand that it is a subjective experience. It is dependent, whether or not something is traumatic, is dependent on an individual person's particular makeup, level of sensitivity or vulnerability. Um, We all come to the world with a different level of sensitivity and vulnerability. We come to the world and experience different sets of resources. Some people have plenty. Others have very few. Some experience early stress in their lives. Others don't. All of this affects whether or not the same particular traumatic event or let's just say a particular event, period, without describing whether or not it's traumatic to one can be to another. I hope that uh, seems clear. And so I could throw out examples of what, you know, the culture at large regards as traumatic, but that would really do a disservice because it's different for each individual person. I so love hearing that because a lot of times I think people devalue their experience. We tend to self-blame a lot. We tend to think that because it's an emotional experience, we should just be able to flip a switch and not feel how we feel. So I really love that you're, you know, drawing a story and a narrative around that that says that there's a background to this. Yes, and I think why I'm so excited to get to share this is because I think one of the, oh, should I say mistakes? I don't really believe there are mistakes, to be honest with you. I think everything's a learning experience. But I think what happens that's unfortunate is that we let other people decide for us. We look outside of us to determine what our own experience is. Can you imagine? We're trained to do this. And so the trauma healing that I do 
is about honoring an individual person's experience, that it is their own, that what they feel is real, and that they need to turn within to understand what the truth is of their experience, regardless of how someone else is telling them. You know, this is really powerful stuff, especially, you know, I'm going back to what you said at the beginning, which is compassion cures trauma. And I'm thinking about this sort of one-two punch that often we humanly do to ourselves, which is what you just highlighted. We look outside for the definition of trauma, and often people, people don't support our own personal experience of it. And how could they know? But it doesn't get supported. And then we don't practice self-compassion for so many reasons. So we feel blamed and we have nowhere to go with it, um, and we feel invalidated. And your work, I think, has been the reversal of that. Yeah, thank you. Thank so you. fill me in a little bit about, well, I have a note. I heard you say somewhere, I wish I could tell you where, that some, uh, you re- referred to planet trauma. <laughs> That's not what? mine. That's oh, that not yours. <laughs> That's not mine. <laughs> oh, no. And I always credit, of course, the greatest teacher that I have ever encountered in my life, Dr. Peter Levine, and his uh, incredibly important uh, creation of trauma healing, a particular approach called somatic experiencing. And I was personally trained by him nearly three years ago now. Uh, Three. (laughs) No, his training is three years long. It was nearly 20 years ago, 20 years ago that I was trained by uh, Dr. Peter Levine. And he, this is his term. And I so appreciate it because, again, it, it goes back to really your uh, first question. It, we're, we're living on the earth. At any time, anything can happen. And so he calls it planet trauma so that we can appreciate that people encounter things that are potentially traumatic every day. And, again, whether or not we judge it as so is really dependent on that individual's experience of it. Right. That, that's a, a very well, well-rounded way of, of talking about it. You know, it leads me to think, you know, sometimes when we talk about trauma and about devaluing trauma, you know, there's this balance between overvaluing it and undervaluing it. And I think, you know, what you're saying is that we have to – be with what our own experience is and discover discover what that is. And I have often found in my own work, and I'm guessing you have as well, that fighting what we genuinely and authentically feel inside of ourselves in terms of our own experience yeah. doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> you got it. I mean, that's so, very, yeah. very true. Yeah. So once we accept it and we say, look, this is where I'm at, this is what my experience is, it's at that point that the compassion starts, I think, and then we can we can move forward. Um, yes. I, I will say another one of my favorite steals, and I don't know who originated this, but it's very helpful. Um, what we resist persists. Yeah. It's what we resist that persists. And once we are able to move into the acceptance, the healing begins. And it's so powerful. Easier said than done, than done sometimes for all of the <laughs> background reasons you laid out. Um, yes. So, again, I feel like there's so many things I could ask you about, but in my own uh, sort of path for our talk today, I wanted, I know you do a lot of work in neuroscience. Is that, do I have that right? 
You do. I mean, I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not in a neuroscientific lab actually doing the, the, the research. I wish I was. I do conduct a lot of my own research, um, but it's not on the brain per se. So what I do as a neuroscience geek, I guess you could call me, <laughs> is, you know, I go to all the neuroscience conferences and I read all the neuroscientific articles and I'm extremely up to date. I subscribe to, you know, neuroscientific journals and it's just a passion of mine um, that has completely informed my work. So I can't call myself a neuroscientist, but certainly um, a follower, a close follower, and I have that inform all of the work I do, yes. So what can neuroscience and compassion, and how do we tie this together into healing emotional pain, and what does neuroscience tell us these days about how to get relief from our pain, how to move forward, how to even want to get relief from our pain? Yeah, how to even want to get relief from our pain. Yes, I will say this. I think this is uh, is something important because whatever starts in neuroscience, I guess I, I want to take this back a, just a little bit and I'll be as quick as I can here about this. But I think it's important to know that about 25 years ago when we uh, discovered, created, and began really using uh, these MRI uh, machines and um, started to be able to really see the brain live and really understand how it functions, how it develops, how it is affected by the very real experiences that we have, once we started doing that, we began to realize that our lo a lot of our theories were incorrect. A lot of our theories, and really they could only be theories. We, we looked at the brain uh, of cadavers before we had MRIs to try to understand uh, brain abnormalities. We would take a look at whether or not lesions existed or any kind of atypicalities. And and so there's not so much you can really know and understand about human functioning as far as how the brain mediates it when you're looking at dead brains. I mean, it's just right. there's wow. just not a lot, you know. So so it's in the last 25 years that we have had this massive surgence of understanding of what really happens in the brain from the very beginning of life. So I say this to say, when all this research started coming out 25 years ago and 20 years ago, all the other fields of science were very skeptical and said, what? That's not what we believe about how the brain works. That's not what we have been following. You know, that's crazy. You know, they really didn't want to. The, the neuroscientists were seen as, as quite crazy. And so they just carried on with their research. But what ended up happening was such a plethora of findings and the replication of findings occurred that all the other fields of inquiry said, oh, my goodness, we better take a look at this for ourselves. So within their field, whether it was biology, endocrinology, you know, whatever the field of inquiry was, they started trying to test what the neuroscientists were finding to see if they would actually find similar results. And of course, we can say now, um, it's quite obvious that they did because neuroscientific findings now are taken very seriously um, and they are replicated across fields. So that brings us 
to a very important uh, study that will answer the question that you asked of me. And it actually occurred in a, in a school of business at the University of Southern California, that Marshall Business School. They wanted to take a look. They wanted to test some of what neuroscience was beginning to say about how the brain is affected by trauma, what some of the most important uh, cures was going to be or is, um, and it took, a, it took a look at what does have us continue in old patterns of behavior over and over and over again? What keeps us stuck? Is it the actual trauma? What's making us choose over and over again the same kinds of behaviors? So here's what the, the research did at the Marshall Business School at the University of Southern California. There were three groups involved. One group was a control group, so they weren't given any special instructions at all. They each, each person in that group had a chance to go into a room with a piece of chocolate cake. And they were observed, and then uh, the, the examiners sort of made some conclusions about what they observed as the person was in the room with the piece of chocolate cake. A second group was an experimental group, not a control group. So the second group was given instructions. That second group was told, you're going to go into the, to a room with a piece of chocolate cake, and when you're in that room with a piece of chocolate cake, here's what we want you to be thinking about. Okay, So here's the brain function. We're going into the room, and we're being instructed to think about something in particular. We want you to be thinking about the last time you lost control with a piece of chocolate cake. You had a couple bites. It tasted so good you couldn't stop yourself. You polished off the whole cake. And then you had to feel those feelings of, oh, my gosh, I was out of control with a piece of chocolate cake. The doctor said, I'm not supposed to be having so much chocolate cake. So we advise you to go in there and be thinking about that and really, you know, maybe not eat that, maybe don't eat that chocolate cake. The third group is also an experimental group and given instructions. And that third group was told, you're going to go into a room with a piece of chocolate cake. And when you're there with the chocolate cake, we want you to be thinking about remembering the last time you were able to enjoy a couple bites of chocolate cake, you pushed it aside, you wanted to get into your skinny jeans, <laughs> you know, who knows what the exact instructions were because I don't have them in front of me now. Um, but it was this idea of, you know, remember a time when you had control with a piece of chocolate cake and we'll see what happens. So the groups went in. And I guess, you know, to cut a very long story shorter here is, you know, there was a group that ate the most chocolate cake and there was a group that ate the least amount of chocolate cake. So if I ask you, what would your guess be? I would guess the ones that were told not to ate the most. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I'm curious. What makes you answer that way? Well, let's see. Um my experience of myself and of human nature oftentimes <laughs> yes. Yes. And, yes. Uh, is that the more that I'm told I can't or I'm not, the more that I, I somehow light up and have to and will, and you uh -huh. can't tell me what to do. And uh -huh. the more I get anxious about it and the more I think I'm uh -huh. going to do it and the more fearful I get, I all kinds of uh -huh. things tumbling forward. Uh -huh. I don't have a choice. I have to. That's it. So you've nailed it. So you, you used words like anxiety. You used words like fear. And I want to introduce another word to you here. Um, 
and that word is when someone says you can't or you shouldn't or don't you remember when you lost control of yourself, can you hear the shaming in that? Yeah, wow. Now that you're highlighting it, for sure. See, what we know is, what we now know, punishment doesn't work. Shaming someone. Now, it comes from a very logical, linear place, right? And we like to really think we're logical, rational, linear people, and we uh, things should happen with common sense. Well, you know, common sense is not so common anymore. We, we're having a, uh, an issue here with common sense. But I will say, logical and linear says, to us, well, if we make somebody feel bad enough about what they've done, surely they'll never do it again. Right. And we know that's not working, do we? We, so, we know that's not working. So now I have a million more questions for you. Because um, <laughs> this is amazing stuff, especially for you know um, anyone struggling with food and weight and eating disorders because you know, in in these minds, um, there's a lot of shame-based thinking that's been ingrained. And you're saying, you know, and and what I hear, you know, what what gets sort of tossed around, or not even tossed, is really put out there, is that that doesn't work. But what you're bringing now is you're saying, hey, there's some like scientific evidence that it doesn't work because I think that we tend not to believe it. We think, yeah, yeah, everyone's supposed to be nice, and if we're nice, we'll get better. And there's sort of a, a casual flippancy to it that gets dismissed. But you're saying, uh-uh, there's studies about this. There are brain studies. There are, there are studies that show, scientifically based, that it doesn't work, that, that shaming and punishment don't heal. Correct. And, you know, there are some very important studies on shame that come out of the fields of biology, physiology, endocrinology, because shame is not a psychological construct. It is a physiological state. It is okay. the depletion, the depletion of all the necessary neurotransmitters, hormonal, um, uh, how do I want to say that? Let's just say hormones, um, hormonal influences, we might say. The depletion of the right juice, the right chemistry inside the body that allows us to, to do well. You see, here's a neuroscientific fact for you. We only do well when we feel good. Wow. We only I mean, do well when we feel good. And, and I have to add, you know, I've been adding a lot now to, in my, with my audiences when I, I, I speak around North America, and I was just in Montreal speaking, and I made sure to add this piece. We only do well when we feel good in spite of, because there's going to be lots of reasons to feel bad. That's for sure. What we need to develop inside of our skin in a, in a nervous system way is the capacity with particular tools that we practice into our nervous system to re-regulate the nervous system so that we can feel good in spite of that we can feel, we know how to get ourselves to feel better regardless of what's going on around us. And that's necessary to make new choices, to make better choices, to sustain that new way of living. We've got to be able to snap ourselves as quickly as we can, and it's a process to teach the nervous system how to do this. 
but we can teach our nervous system to bounce back quicker, to cut off the shame cycle that is depleting us from the neurochemistry we need to feel good enough to make those better choices. Okay, so there are some amazing things that you're saying. So I want to kind of recap and then, and then toss some, some questions out. What you are saying is that this is a physiological state, and instead of just working with our hearts and our minds and our psyches, which is beautiful to do, and our spirits, you're saying that we can and need to work with our physiology, our physical bodies, our brains, to help us. Do I have Correct. it right? Correct. Okay, good. You so, do because, yeah, go ahead. Um, so much to ask you. So I'm wondering also in terms, I'll toss these two things out at you. One is sometimes, you know, in the world of, you know, uh, therapy, sometimes bad feelings, when we tolerate them, they can have an upside, meaning, you know, they can lead to something good. For example, if we're jealous, which is a very, you know, painful feeling, it can help us define what we want, what we're after, how to motivate ourselves. If we are um, in a place to hear that the jealousy is messaging. So I'm wondering, A, what do we do? H- how does this apply when we're dealing with things that are sad or when we do have a, a bad feeling? Are there different shades of this? I'm not sure if I'm oh. asking it so clearly. No, no, no. I, I'm glad you're asking the question. It's a beautiful one because that's what this work is all about. The work that I do is all about practicing into the nervous system particular tools, sensory tools, because we have to work at the level of physiology. Everything starts in the physiology. So when, and and I could talk more about that, but I feel like I could go off on 10 different tangents. So I'm going to try to stay really focused here and just answer the question that, yes, we have to start physiologically. We have to work with sensory tools that get practiced in so well that we grow a physiological tolerance, a capacity to notice every emotion that we could possibly feel. Where some people want to say things are positive or negative. I don't I don't believe in that. I believe in the value of absolutely everything. There is value to absolutely everything. The key is whether or not we can tolerate what's showing up for us. So it's showing up, there's a gift in it. Like you said, there's a gift in every emotion. Otherwise, why would those of us who are people of faith, right? I I have a a belief in, in something greater than myself, that is for certain, and I trust that. You know, my, my a God of my understanding is is, uh, is such a, a compassionate, loving uh, God that I I you know know for me that everything has value, and who am I to judge it? You know, other than to say there's a gift in this. As painful as it is, I know this is hard for people who are suffering right now. This is very hard for them to hear. And I, and I really appreciate that. I, I won't go into my own personal history of extreme suffering. So I've been there. I'm not talking out of an ivory tower here. I will say that there's such value that what I've had to learn to do is tolerate whatever comes up so that it can, I can get the gift, it can move through me, and I can get on with it. Because that's what, that's what comes when you're able to tolerate it and allow it to move through you. You'll get the gift and then you get to move forward with that gift. 
such an amazing and you know I, amazing way of looking at it. And of course, I'm I'm right in sync with you. Also, um, not talking from an ivory tower and knowing and having been through suffering and having the idea that you know I once heard that suffering was pain without meaning and movement. And, Aha. Um, and I think that that's what you're you're saying. But what? Yeah. Um, just coming back to all of these beautiful ideas that you're tying together, that that we don't get better from punishment, that compassion is where healing starts, that there is a physiological premise for being able to help ourselves tolerate the difficulties in life, to tolerate bad feelings, and to be able to use them and grow. And I have so many things I want to ask you, but I thought I would maybe make a jump into some of your work that you do, your 60-second method, your self-regulation method, somatic therapy, and and ask you how you work with these things um, to do what you're saying to help people heal and move into working with their biology and their physiology and to tolerate and grow from their own painful experiences. Yes. there I work very specifically in a somatic way, which simply means that I work with the body. I work with the physiology of the body. Now, what does physiology mean, right? It feels kind of seems like a big word and what exactly, you know, we kind of have an idea of what that is, but what is it exactly? It's simply our heart rate, our blood pressure, our breath um, that is having this impact on our thoughts, you see. William James is the father, the grandfather, the godfather, whatever we want to call it, of psychology. And he did not call it psychology. He called it physiological psychology. He was in the late 1800s really creating a field of study. And it became, we we dropped the physiological for no good reason, and now we're left with this field of psychology. But it began as a physiological psychology because William James knew. Can you imagine with MRIs that he knew that we feel physical sensations first? We are driven from our instincts, our survival instincts. That is the quickest, quickest response and experience that we have in the body. Our thoughts comes much later. Now it wow. only comes second later, right? But that's an eternity in comparison to our survival instincts that have us act and react in fractions of fractions of a second, you see. And so we are feeling something in a sensory way first, always. That we're always experiencing sensations and that is driving up it's a bottom-up process. It's driving up our thoughts. So when our heart rate and our blood pressure, right, cortisol, stress hormones are pumping through our veins, believe me, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I'm afraid. I must be afraid. I, I'm going to die. I'm gonna, this is what panic attacks are all about, is that there's this physiology occurring, and we begin making judgments about that physiology, and it's never good. <laughs> we're, we're always going to that catastrophic place because of our instincts to survive. If I assume that the worst thing is going to happen, then I prepare myself for that worst thing that could happen. So this is a primitive way of living 
It is important to our survival, so we need to bless it, honor it, thank it. And we need to work in a sensory way with sensory tools for the possibility of, of taming that so that it's there for us when we need it, but it's not overtaking our life where we're assuming that everything that's happening to us is horrible, you know? So I practice in a somatic way with the body. I call my approach self-regulation therapy. It's a, a somatic approach to healing. And I do use 60 seconds, which is something that I created over many years of trying uh, a lot of different things uh, based in the neuroscience. And I just wanted to pull from everything the very best and to collect data to see what set of tools could um, effect change on us the quickest and the easiest because it turns out we're hardwired to be lazy. And I want people to know that. Have compassion. <laughs> really? Have compassion. We don't love getting awoken in the morning. We don't love, you know, some of us pop out of bed, but I'll say that a lot of us, it's a, it's a difficult transition um, to get up and go, you know, and to do all the things on our to-do list and to do them with enthusiasm. I mean, come on. This is, we're really hardwired now. This is a very new uh, neuroscientific finding um, to be lazy. And so uh, we're going to give ourselves a break about that. But what that's uh, done is it's validated this approach that I've come up with because I was recognizing that I just couldn't get people to try, uh, even if they knew, even if I said to them, this is going to heal you, I'm telling you, healing is possible. But if it required too much effort, people weren't going to try it. So I had right. to find what what is the easiest, what is the quickest, and so hence we have 60 seconds now and the focus of those particular tools as a good entry point into healing the nervous system. So without um, telling us the whole book, could you give me a few a few tidbits about what 60 seconds is? Could you give us a few, you know, share a few yes. of it, a little of it? Oh, yes. Sure. So the book is called The 60 Seconds Fix. The set of tools that is, is talked about in the book is simply called 60 Seconds. My uh, PR person said, you know, that's really what you're trying to do with this set of sensory tools that you've called 60 seconds. 60 seconds is really intended to uh, replace over time. Uh, the better we get at the tools, the quicker it kicks in and the longer it lasts. Um, but it's in, they're intended to replace eventually some of these less healthy ways we're trying to get a fix for these uncomfortable feelings and sensations or thoughts inside of us. We try to distract uh, with other things, like, you know, we might be feeling a lot of activation that we call fear or anxiety or shame, or, and these uncomfortable feelings uh, cause us to act out. We reach outside of ourselves for some sort of a fix, a distraction. And it might be vodka, it might be a joint, it might be sex, it might be pornography, it might be a chocolate cake, it might be the shopping network, it might be a video game. My private practice has blown up with uh, video game addiction. And right. so there's, 
there's this uh, desire in us to numb the discomfort or to distract ourselves from the discomfort. My hope is that this, this, this set of sensory tools that really allow for us to bring down that activation that we call fear or anxiety or shame or pain or any of those experiences that we find uncomfortable or unbearable or impossible to tolerate, um, this set of tools called 60 Seconds um, really help to bring that activation down. We can't do it with words. The words do not change the brain and the nervous system. The brain and nervous system change in response to experience. And experience is something that the whole body processes. So we can't forget our sensory system, the physiological part of us that is really most involved in the experience of trauma. So what is so amazingly hopeful about what you're saying first of all to me the fact that some of this can show up and i and i'm gathering lights up on an mri so that we have scientifically physiologically based evidence you know is so relieving and hopeful it lifts off all of that self-blame um that we're supposed to be able to control this and in fact we do have a way of helping our bodies that you're saying that instead of trying to force ourselves out of a thought or out of a feeling, that there's a way to work with our bodies. I'm guessing, I'm wondering what some of the tools are. Maybe you could give us a hint. I'm guessing some of it Absolutely. Okay, good. Like right now, no matter what any of your listeners are doing, no matter what you're doing, okay, I'm actually kind of pacing around here a little bit because I like to. And so what I'm doing right now that I would encourage your listeners to do right now is to begin to feel their feet on the ground. And you could do this with me. Just if you're having a hard time noticing how solid the ground is beneath your feet, wiggle your toes a little bit. Push your heels in a little, you know, uh, shift from side to side, noticing your weight shifting from one side to the other. But I want you to really begin to notice in a sensory way here that there's solid ground beneath your feet. And as you do that, I want you to breathe in through your nose, always in through the nose. When we're panicked, when we're scared, when we're in a survival mode, we're breathing in and out of our mouth. Very quick, rapid breath that keeps sending messages back to our brain that we're afraid, that something terrible is happening, that we need to be prepared. And in and out goes the breath, in and out of our mouth, keeping us in a highly activated state. When we shift this and breathe into our nose over and over again, noticing our feet on solid ground, we begin to lower our heart rate, our blood pressure, our cortisol levels. When that begins to happen, then the possibility of serotonin and dopamine and other really good-feeling neurotransmitters get to release in our brain to bring us relief. That cannot happen by staring in the mirror and reciting mantras. It's, you know, the idea that we're going to change our thoughts and that that's going to bring us relief. Please, if some people are doing it and it's working, fantastic. I'm here to talk to those of us who have tried those approaches and we cannot talk ourselves down. We need sensory tools that literally change 
the experience we're having in our body, lowering heart rate, lowering blood pressure. This is what happens. If your nurse is forgetting to tell you to uncross your legs and put your feet flat on the ground before taking your blood pressure, please begin to do this for yourself. It instantaneously lowers your blood pressure. And then you have a chance. You have a chance for relief. Yes. You know, this is powerful stuff. I think we're going to have to wrap up soon, and I'm I'm sad because I feel like there's so many things to talk about. Maybe we'll continue the conversation again. But, you know, I just want to say again how the basics and the basics of working with our bodies and not, you know, getting caught in the endless loops of bad thinking that understandably happens. The mind is the mind, and it sends forth our thoughts. But you're saying you don't have to get caught in that. Work with your body, work with your observing self, work with your physiology, and then the rest flows forth. And not to get caught up in the panic that happens, but to remember the sensory tools, and then the rest will come. And is yes. that what I'm? I'm sort of summarizing because it's so. That hopeful. is exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. And even though. Your left brain right now, okay, the logical part of you is going to say, oh, rubbish. That is absolute nonsense, as if that could ever, oh, I'm going to feel my feet on the ground. Oh, yeah, and then I'm going to feel better. Yeah, right. Okay, that's so. Why are we so resistant to it? Why do people say, "Don't teach me to breathe. Don't talk to me about breathing." I why are we so stubborn? That's important. Okay, so let's let's let's. uh, Those are two different questions. You see, we could go on forever because (laughs) I know we have to wrap up. But it's really important that those of us that are trauma babies that there isn't a big focus on breath. We, you know, a lot of us were suffocated. And I uh-huh. hate to bring up such a serious trauma, but right. um, it's personal experience of mine growing up with a mentally ill parent. You know, they, they, there's voices telling them to suffocate us to death. I mean, there's just crazy things going on, and this is the life I live. So I have, you know, tremendous, uh, I couldn't do the breath in the beginning. So when they say to us, please don't make me focus on breath, they're really saying, please don't make me focus on breath. And we right. do need to listen to that, okay? So, right. and the, and the um, you know, the book explains that. I know we have to go, but certainly the 60 yeah. Second Six is explanatory, and you can learn more there and visit my website and all of that good stuff. Right. Well, I know. I, I, I want to just thank you because there's so much more to say, and all of your um, points of contact are right on Recovery, Hope, and Healing. So anybody who's interested in reaching you. I know that you do um, some distance work. I know that people travel to see you, um, to have the experience of being with you in person. And certainly your books are available very readily, and it's very easy to find all of your things right right here next to the podcast um, link. So I just want to thank you so much again. And I'll say the website for anybody that just wants to, to hear it, if you're not looking at it, it's Dr. Melrose dot com d r m e l r o s e dot com pretty easy to find you and any last thoughts before we just say a final thank you and a goodbye for now you know uh, really just that it was a pleasure that it's always a pleasure to get a chance to help alleviate the shame of the planet because that's really yeah. what's stopping us is, is our own shame, that deep-seated shame. So when we can shift the shame to self-compassion, 
we have everything we need. We really do. I, I'm getting goosebumps about it. We have everything we need. These tools are to help us shift out of shame into self-compassion. And then we really, that's when we bloom. That's when we bloom. Thank you so much. What a beautiful way to conclude. Okay. I'm going to say goodbye for now. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you.